0: A new United Nations report warns the impacts of climate change are increasing and inevitable.
1: Experts say that we have until 2030 to avoid catastrophe. Temperatures in the Arctic have warmed about two to three times the global average. It will be very difficult
0: and impossible for our children to control climate change.
1: This is South of Two Degrees, and I am your host, Brian Barnes. It is so good to have you with us today on the only podcast dedicated to bringing unfiltered scientific research to the forefront of the climate conversation. Today is probably one of our most anticipated shows as we release part two of our interview with the always amazing Dr. Sylvia Earle. So my friends, once more, into the fray. Welcome back, and I know we left you with a cliffhanger last week by only releasing the first half of my interview with Dr. Sylvia Earle, but hey, this isn't Netflix, so you don't get to binge everything all at once. Well, unless you're a new listener to the show, then yeah, you've got a lot of catching up to do, but we won't keep you waiting, as I'm so excited to be sharing the second half with you now as we hear all about her recent book, Who She Sees as Her Successor and where she finds hope in a troubled world. So without further ado, Dr. Earl, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Brian. So I want to dive right in as your latest book that came out, what, just about a year ago, is a fantastic read. But before we get there, I want to back up a bit. As we discussed the last time, you've authored quite a few scientific papers. And as for books, well... As I used to say in Oklahoma, this isn't your first rodeo, is it?
0: <laughs> it's my 15th book, including 5 for kids. And the others, well, I've done two atlases, ocean atlases for the ocean. And when I did the first one in 2001, I said, "Things are happening so fast. We're learning so much in 5 years. We're going to have to do this again." Well, actually it was 8 years. <laughs> we did the National Geographic Atlas of the Ocean. And I said then, things are moving so fast. We're learning so much. This book is going to be outdated before it even is out of print. I mean, even in print. And that was 2008. Now, 2021, it's a longer period of time. And think of how much we have learned since then, how much we're learning all the time. And it's not just the ocean directly, it's the ocean's impact on climate. It's the impact of the ocean on everything else.
1: You're so right. And I love not only within the scientific community, but outside it as well, we're coming around to seeing systems instead of disparate pieces. But I want to focus on impact, if you will. What impacted you such that you wanted to write this book since you've authored so many others?
0: Well, 2020 was a shocking year in so many ways. We had to stay home. at a level that (laughs) most of us hadn't experienced. 2019 was maybe my most actual traveled year. I was on the road more than 300 days out of the whole year away from home. I mean, I know big carbon footprint, but I tried to make use of that time in a way that tried to pay my dues, if you will, my carbon dues, giving back in whatever way I can. I think
1: your advocacy is more than paid your carbon dues. But okay, so on to your latest book called ocean, a global odyssey. I have to say it's fairly unique. Now, I would say it's a beautiful blend of history, hope for the future, and an atlas. But let's be honest, no one really cares
0: what I call it.
1: How would you describe it? So this is not
0: exactly an atlas. What we've done this time, starting in 2019, and but all of 2020, basically diving into who has learned what about the ocean, how does it all fit together? And it was a tremendous scholarly exercise for me to try to sort it all out. It is so wonderfully pieced together.
1: I can honestly say that I loved every single page of it, truly.
0: Well, I had a lot of help from colleagues and National Geographic team there. Really superb discipline that they imposed on me, but mostly it's in segments. It's a 500 word summary or a thousand words or 3,000 words, little chunks. We try to take a topic and work it over, drawing on the most up to date knowledge that we can find from those who are really expert about this piece or that piece, and we try to pull it together, weave it together to tell to the best of our ability where are we. And that is what makes this
1: book so poignant. It's the absolute latest info. But I want to point out that while that is a critical component, one of the beautiful aspects was that in each chapter within the current data, you told not only the story of a place, but you also featured one of the great scientific minds that furthered the human understanding of it. And that was something i would never seen done before. And it was I got to say, it was just brilliant. We featured in each
0: chapter a place, a hope spot, with stories to talk about the champions who have stepped up and made a commitment to a place. Like the national parks on the land, we need to have places in the ocean, a network of hope. And there are 140 such places now. We are only able to celebrate a small number of them. And also put the spotlight on other projects like the Pristine Seas.
1: Oh, I love the Pristine Seas project. And I want to jump in here really quick for anyone who isn't familiar. It's a project by National Geographic to carry out expeditions and inspire the protection of the world's last truly wild places. Now, the last time I checked, they carried out 35 expeditions. They ended up protecting something like 6 million square kilometers and inspiring the creation of... 26 new marine reserves it's an absolutely incredible project
0: yeah but that's you've got that right but there are organizations and individuals around the world who are stepping up with commitments and to work with governments to work with the united nations to look at the high seas right now there's a biodiversity crisis and if we could embrace half the world the high seas, the area of the ocean, beyond national jurisdiction. You know, we humans are really good at claiming territory. God, isn't that the truth?
1: We love to look at something just claim it for ourselves, don't we? And them fiercely. <laughs> right. And the natural world just doesn't seem to care about some little lines we draw on paper.
0: There are creatures who defend their territory, but, you know, <laughs> like little crabs, this is my line. This, this is line. mine. <laughs> but... When you think about the ocean, yeah, you know, there, there are pathways in the ocean that are largely governed by currents. There are borders and boundaries by temperature, by depth, pressure boundaries, light boundaries. There are some that don't venture into places that it is forever dark, but there are also those who don't like sunlight. In fact, most of life on Earth lives in the dark all of the time, below where sunlight penetrates, below 1,000 feet. Yeah. You know. 300 meters is about the depth where meaningful sunlight. There's some that goes down a little deeper, but 1,000 meters, it's dark. It's eternally dark. But by luminescence, illuminates the deep sea, but it's not sunlight. And what, what baffles me is that most people don't even know that these creatures, that most of life on Earth lives in the dark ocean, and it makes our existence possible. You see,
1: that's where I think we need to flip the script. I mean, we look at the ocean as we've been taught to look at it. You know, we look out across it and we see something so vast we think of it as infinite, even though it's not. We see the creatures in it, but we can't see exactly how they've impacted our daily lives. So we assume they haven't. And to be honest, most of us have never been told that they do.
0: They just think about life in the ocean as something to eat. Or to turn into fertilizer, or to just (laughs) casually think of as a you know it's so so it's there so what not realizing it's the carbon cycle it's the cycle of life it's a living ocean that keeps us alive and (sighs) Mm -hmm. it's so
1: frustrating isn't it I mean I feel your pain I do. I can't tell you how many times I've been out in or on the ocean and just seen such beauty. You know, be it the coral reefs of Roatan swarming with fish or a pot of dolphins surfing the pressure wave on the prow of a boat I'm sailing around Australia on. At least for me, I just want to tell those stories, I guess in a vain attempt or hope really that someone else will really see what i see it sucks but i know how you feel
0: the knowledge is there so this book my my goal was to try to be a voice for the ocean and to try to encourage people to go see for themselves and to realize that the ocean keeps you whoever you are wherever you are keeps you alive show some respect don't think of the ocean just as a source of what we lump together as seafood we should at least think of it as sea life wildlife and the greatest diversity of life is out there in the ocean and we need to respect life in the ocean as part of what keeps us alive you're here now having said that
1: though how do you suggest that those that eat fish or sea life reconcile that
0: if you eat fish, do so with great respect and maybe think about the greater value that whales have alive. And if it works for whales, their carbon value, a trillion dollars for whales alive today. And think about, okay, if it works for whales, why doesn't why shouldn't we respect sharks and tuna and swordfish and flounder and halibut and krill and copepods and seagrasses and, and all of that? Why, why do we have to think of them as products? Why do we have to just think of the value of the ocean as something dead turned into something that we catch and kill? Why don't we think of the value of the living ocean as the number one thing that we should value the ocean for? The most important thing that we take from the ocean is our existence has nothing to do with oil and gas or pounds of meat. It's we live because, at least for now, the ocean lives. But We're doing a pretty good job of killing the ocean with trawling, with long lines, hauling millions of tons of wildlife out of the ocean, either for fun or because we think that we need to eat it when actually we don't. I mean, some people actually do need to eat wild animals for sustenance. It's called bush meat on the land. That people who really require taking wild birds and some wild animals for their sustenance and island countries, coastal communities around the world have a long history of taking wild animals from the ocean. And they actually rely on this to some extent for their food supply.
1: But they do it in a symbiotic way
0: historically, but now most of what is taken from even island countries and coastal communities is not consumed locally. Yeah. It's turned into money. Tuna, mostly not consumed by those who take them. It's consumed for a high-end luxury market. Yeah. They're too valuable to eat. They're, they're worth too much in the marketplace for people who live not in coastal areas so much, but far inland have developed a new habit new habit go back 100 years even 50 years fish that were taken one day and transported with a big carbon footprint by air or by boat with refrigeration that didn't exist 100 years ago over long <laughs> transport either frozen or fresh to distant markets i mean it's wildlife trade yeah. the biggest wildlife trade on the planet is what we lump together as seafood these are wild animals Wild animals, like lions and tigers, like songbirds, that we take out of the ocean, thinking of them just as something to eat, when really they're elements of what keep us alive, the living ocean.
1: That's so sad.
0: And there's a climate connection. It's carbon. Follow the carbon. Follow
1: the carbon. (laughs)
0: Now, I want to circle back around to
1: those hope spots, which you led the creation of, and I might add are crucial not only for the creatures within them, but also in that hope is the most powerful motivator to drive people to action. But I'm curious, are most of those hope spots in territorial waters, or are some of them in the deep sea?
0: Most of the areas that are protected across the board that have come up over, well... National protected areas really began largely in the 1970s in Australia with the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Party and with the U.S. Marine Sanctuary Program. But, you know, they're not really fully protected. They're managed. Right now, Great Barrier Reef, it's almost a third, not quite a third of the Barrier Reef, really has a high level of protection. That means that 70% of it is open for sport fishing and commercial extraction of wildlife. And it's still suffering from what people are putting into the ocean. And this is true with our own national marine sanctuaries in the United States. They even encourage sport fishing in the national marine sanctuaries. Let's go kill something. It's fun. Anyway, sorry. I <laughs> No, no, no. I I agree with you and it's just, oh
1: I it it irks me. I'm sure not to the level it irks you, but uh yeah, I feel your passion. We get it
0: love to get out and and catch fish i mean it's it's a part of our culture and grown-ups teach kids it's okay to go out with a fishing pole and and kill something for the fun of it not because we're hungry but because it's fun it's a big sport and there's a lot of money attached to it sporting goods and uh, i mean it's 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 sport hunting. But, 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 okay, let's just put that aside because it does get people out there. They get to see the ocean and maybe they'll one day respect it alive better than more than hang up their fishing poles and their spear guns and pick up a camera or just pick up a snorkel and go enjoy the ocean for its own sake. Like you don't go into a national park with a gun usually, <laughs> or with an axe that kills someone. I something. would hope not.
1: Yeah. But, the, the, but we do with the
0: ocean. Right now we have, yeah, for sure. Globally, about 3% of the ocean has high degree of protection. That means 97% of the ocean is basically open for exploitation one way or the other. Now, about 10% has some form of managed. It's like our marine sanctuaries. They have some kind of protection, but they're still being exploited both commercially and for sport throughout much of it. Or In some cases, that 97% is kind of tricky to get to, like areas in the Arctic or the Antarctic. So most people don't go there, but the commercial exploiters do in both cases, the Arctic and the Antarctic. No place is really safe. Or the deep sea, the parts of the deep ocean that have yet to be accessed, although we're going deeper all the time. So you asked about the high seas. For me, there's one hope spot. It's called the ocean. I love that. All of it. And all of the champions together support the whole concept of protection for the ocean places that they can get their arms around and do something locally and knit together in a network of hope. But the high seas, high seas, that's been my passion for as long as I've recognized that we have carved out coastal (laughs) areas and the high seas is up for grabs. The freedom of the seas, the freedom to kill, the freedom to take. It's also the responsibility to care and Right now, there are deliberations. Uh, I started when I was chief scientist at NOAA in 1991. I actually pulled together a conference in Hawaii. It was called Wild Ocean Reserves. It's before the high seas, before the law of the sea had actually come into full effect. But that, that took place in 1993 when enough nations kind of signed the International Law of the Sea Treaty. The United States still has not ratified the international law of the sea. <laughs> oh, by the way, about five <laughs> nations, we're one of them. Uh, anyway, we, we respect the general
1: principle of it. Principles,
0: right. Yeah. But we're not at the table when big decisions are being made. Like, what do we do about the part of the Arctic that is technically high seas? We we can talk about it, we can advise, but we're not among the nations that can decide. Yeah. So your question was a very straightforward one about are there hope spots that are in the high seas? Yes. The the Gackle Ridge in the Arctic, the Charlie Gibbs area in the North Atlantic, the Sargasso Sea, big, you know, floating golden rainforest and oh, I'm an old
1: sailor, so uh you know, the Sargasso Sea. Oh yes, I know the Sargasso Sea.
0: But in principle, the whole idea of Mission Blue with Hope Spots is flat out full support for full protection for all of the high seas. No, when I say no industrial fishing, no fishing, because there's, there's no local fishing, no artisanal fishing, no, nobody goes from land out past 200 miles for local consumption of wildlife. It's pretty far out. Now, for the, the Polynesian sailors, or if you're sailing on the high seas, you're out in the boat and you're feeding yourself, I don't mean cruise ships. Yeah. I mean, if you're out there on your own, yeah. you're, you're your own little island in the ocean. <laughs> and certainly y-
1: your your own little crew of right. four or something like that.
0: Yeah. Certainly the traditional sailors. And I think about the Polynesian wayfinders. I mean, of course, you know, you're a part of the system. It's not just cultural, it's, it's actual, it's real. You're part of the ocean, so you're not the problem. The problem is those who use industrial-sized gear, yeah. or even...
1: Those who have abused our house for their gain.
0: Correct. And anyway, it's, it's heartbreaking that fishing gear and discarded plastic, it's fishing lines and long lines, it's the trawls that are escaped, it's all this stuff. On the order of 300,000 marine mammals are killed every year oh, in entanglement.
1: Just in entanglement.
0: Wow. Right. And we don't have an allotment to take 300,000 marine mammals a year. But This is just incidental. The ones that we know about and what about the ones we don't know about. And it's not just marine mammals. It's birds. It's turtles. It's all those fish that aren't going to market. They're not feeding people. They're just dying.
1: It's such a tragedy. And I keep thinking, you know what, this is the year because we've got to do something. But I want to bring it up a little bit and actually talk about leadership within that same vein. You've talked in several places in the book that Bibi was the one that inspired you to get involved in science and Jacques Cousteau made you want to dive into the ocean. And if I'm being honest, you've kind of filled that line of succession from them. But my question is, who's next? Is there someone out there that you see that we should be following or how do you see
0: that? The joy of the 21st century is that there are many who have dived in, taken the plunge. And in the book, The Ocean, A Global Odyssey, a number of visionaries, you'll see if you look at the book, every one of them is cause for hope. And there are others who are out there who are down there doing their thing. I say, be one of them. Be the next hero. No child left dry. No grown-up either. Don't let life pass you by without getting to explore the blue heart of the planet yourself.
1: Perfectly said.
0: Now, I know we're running
1: short on time, so I just have one final question for you. While not to the extent you have, I've spent a fair chunk of my life at sea, the deep sea, and in all my time, I've yet to meet another sailor that didn't find something enchanting about that thin blue line way out on the horizon where the sky kisses the sea when you're out there, what do you see in that line?
0: I look down <laughs> <laughs> look under the boot.
1: <laughs> I love it. I love it. That's the first time I've heard that. That is, that's a wonderful answer.
0: There are mountains down there, the biggest tallest mountains on the planet and the broadest plains and the deepest, most wondrous valleys. And it's, it's alive. (laughs) And from the surface, it looks pretty much the same today as it did a thousand years ago, but it's so different. Why? Because of what we've put into it, what we've taken out of it. Well, I
1: never like to leave an audience thinking, well, what can I do? So what can they do? What do you recommend?
0: Well, check out Mission Blue and look at the champions who are out there and become one. You know, you must have a place that you know and love. Go online, go check out how do you declare a hope spot or or find one that might appeal to you, you know, pitch in, help with it. And, And also, most importantly, just look in the mirror, figure out who you are and what your superpower is everybody has something that they can do really well and they should use it and think about how can you wake up tomorrow having done something today that makes that moves moves things forward if everybody did even a little bit imagine how far we could get there are lots of reasons for despair and if you think that we're just doomed and you give up you're part of the problem that's a self-fulfilling prophecy people say huh oh, you know, Climate change is inevitable. We're all going to burn up. And so I'm going to have a good time and forget about the kids. Kids, listen up. Don't you let that happen. Get after the grownups around you. And if they're not going to do their part, then you know, do yours and you'll get them to come on board. They just have to. They just have to. We all must. I mean, this is the time. That's what I love about the 21st century. We know what needs to be done. And maybe as never again. We've got the We've the best chance we've ever had. Before, we did not know. And if we wait much longer, it may be, may be too late. It's not too late right now.
1: No, no, it's not. But Dr. Earl, thank you so much for your time, your advice to those listening, your hope, and mostly for all you do. You need to know the world is a better place for having you in it. And while I feel like we could sit here and talk for days, unfortunately, we've got to end the conversation here for now. And that wraps up another episode of South of Two Degrees. I hope you have learned, laughed, and been inspired by Dr. Sylvia Earle throughout this conversation. A special thank you to National Geographic for helping set this up and make it possible. And make sure you go pick up a copy of her book, Ocean, A Global Odyssey. It's incredible. And aside from checking out all the latest information on the website, blog, meta, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, you know what? You told me how much you love the ending, Dr. Earl, so you take it.
0: Do this for me. Tell one other person about this show in the next week. Have at least one conversation with one other person about climate change. And above all, keep it south of two degrees.